The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. Welcome to worship, whether you're on site or online. My name is Nathan Carden. I'm delighted to be here with you as we conclude our series today. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth, but the meditation and thinking, the pondering of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. It was January of 2018 that the New York Times shared an article entitled, UK Appoints a Minister for Loneliness, quoting the Prime Minister at that time, Theresa May. Far too many people, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. I want to confront this challenge for our society and for all of us to take action to address the loneliness endured by the elderly, by carers, by those who've lost loved ones, people who have no one to talk to or share their thoughts and experiences with. They came to this realization and taking this form of action for the government to appoint a minister for loneliness based on recommendations by their equivalent of a surgeon general that said that a feeling of isolation as a human being is more of a threat to your health than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. In Japan, not long after that, there was a booming new app in business called Rent a Friend, which would be so sad if not humorous. I'll be your friend as long as you pay me to do it. The Christian faith ought to be the kind of place where we can reclaim the lost art of making and building deep, human friendships, deep connections with other people. In week one of our series, we acknowledged that because God is one and yet triune as Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is love because God is a community of persons. And we are made in God's image. Therefore, humanity, you and I, are made with the hunger and capacity for loving friendship. Now, that was kind of the reason why we long for connection with others. But in week two, we moved to three practical principles from the book of Proverbs. And you don't have to be a Christian even to practice these three principles from Proverbs. It warns against choosing isolation or um, separating ourselves from others. It teaches that true friends become family in times of hardship and that sincere truth from a friend is more valuable than flattery from an enemy. I believe we have that on a slide uh, for week two. But today, I want to kind of change the conversation a little bit. And I want to do that by beginning acknowledging, begin acknowledging this. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good friend. Most of you probably know people in your life who have been loyal, kind, trustworthy, generous, and fun. Many of you may have friends like that. Maybe you are a friend like that, and you may not confess the Christian faith. Well, Proverbs teaches us that if you just apply those three principles from week two, then you can be a better kind of friend. So today, I want to elevate the conversation a little bit into the New Testament by a teaching that I'm kind of describing as spiritual friendship. Now, I've talked for two weeks now about the two dimensions to friendship. The first is trust, and the second is joy. You can trust someone and not enjoy them, and you can enjoy someone but not trust them. Well, that's for basic friendship. That's what most of us are looking for. But for true spiritual friendship, there's a third component. There's trust, there is joy, 
And then, would you read this with me? A shared commitment to becoming like Jesus. All right. If you're a kind of person that has a vision for your life where you will try to fulfill all of your own goals and dreams, but you like this message of being able to go to heaven when you die, and you kind of like a feeling of positivity you get from being kind of associated with the church, this message will make zero sense to you. Because you don't really have a desire to become. The affection of your heart is not to become like Christ. But I would ask you if that is you, and you say, yeah, that's, I just want to be a good friend. I don't really want to experience spiritual friendship if that's what it means. It may not make sense to you, but I would encourage you to consider its merits today. The Apostle Paul and many writers of the New Testament talk about this kind of elevated new friendship. Why do they talk about true spiritual friendship? Well, simple. Because they believed that Jesus Christ came to restore humanity to its intended purpose. Ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, all human community has been frayed. All bonds of friendship have been worn thin. You see it in the first family between Adam and Eve and their sons Cain and Abel. And all of the human relationships that form after that, we are constantly fighting against this disease of sin in the world which breaks down human relationships. And so, the writers of the New Testament believed from creation, originally, to new creation in Christ. Jesus Christ comes to restore harmonious relationships between humanity and God and human beings between one another. And the Apostle Paul gives us some aspects of this kind of community and friendship in his second chapter of his book of Philippians. This is a map of the ancient Mediterranean Sea. You can't see all the tiny little dots and descriptions there, but on the very northern part of the Mediterranean Sea in your modern-day Greece, there is about 10 miles inland a city that was called Philippi. And the Apostle Paul traveled to Philippi between the years of 49-51 on a second missionary journey. He was accompanied by Timothy and by Silas and possibly even Luke, the author of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He may have been with them when they planted this church. And sometime, we're not exactly sure, 10 to 15 years after that journey where they founded that church, Paul pins a letter to this community And if you read it, it's not very long. You can read the whole thing under 30 minutes. You can hear Paul's affection for this group of people. He really loves the church at Philippi. They have a special place in his heart. And he begins his letter in chapter 1 with an incredibly hopeful vision for the Christian life. These are verses 1 through 6. When we get to verse 6, I would invite you to read the bold part with me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's, I thank my God for every remembrance of you, always in every one of my prayers for all of you, praying with joy for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now join me. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me go back to my disclaimer. If Christianity for you is simply getting your card punched so that you have this sense of peace of mind about your future when you die, that last phrase from Paul will have very little direct application to that kind of worldview. Paul says, the one who began a good work in you 
will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christians believe, and I would say Methodists specifically and peculiarly believe, God wants to do a whole lot more than just forgive me. He intends by the power of His Spirit over time, when I cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in my life, to remake me into the image of Christ. I will never stop being Nathan Carden. I will never reach complete perfection and without human frailty. But over time, by the grace of God, I will have measured differences in the way that I think, the way I speak, the way I live. And that's the goal of the Christian life is for us to become like Christ. And so the one who began that work wants to complete it. And Paul never ever says that it's a solitary endeavor. In fact, all the language in that first chapter is plural. When you, the community, you are partners, and the one that began in you, the church at Philippi, it is meant to be something we do together with Christian friends. So what does that look like specifically? How do we practice true spiritual friendship? I'd like to lift up to you three virtues of true spiritual friendship from Philippians chapter 2. We'll read together in verses 1 through 11. And when we get to verse 6, I want to invite you to join me in the reading of it because this is probably the first hymn of the Christian faith. Paul himself probably did not write it. We have some evidence to suggest that if he wrote this letter in the early 60s, this poem that we'll get to in verses 6 through 11 actually emerged within five or six years of Jesus' death and resurrection. It was the first hymn of the Christian faith or poem. So, verses 1 through 5, and then you'll join me together. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In their relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Join me. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul sets the expectations for Christian friendship and community over and against the very example of Jesus Christ, who was equal with the Father and the Spirit, and yet willingly limited himself by laying aside some of those privileges, some of those attributes, to be wrapped in a human body, and lowered himself to where we are. And he didn't just stop with where we live, 
He lowered himself even to the consequences of our sin by going to the cross and experiencing the death that we deserved in our place. And then God having raised him from the dead because of his great obedience, now he's glorified and restored at his rightful place next to the Father. That's the vision for how we are to live by thinking about others the way Christ thought about us. And there are three specific virtues that Paul gives us in verses 1 through 5. First is found in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Paul doesn't say it's bad to be ambitious. He says it's bad to be selfish and ambitious. And I was studying and thinking, okay, why is that the case? And here's what I realized. If I am ambitious and I'm selfish, I am measuring my progress over and against the people around me. I need to have someone to compare myself to. And Paul says you couldn't have selfish ambition within the Christian community of true spiritual friendship because then you're only thinking about yourself. Try, try, trying perhaps to outdo others or have them look at you with the spirit of vain conceit. Paul says no. Well, uh, the author Eugene Peterson, who wrote the paraphrase of the message we sometimes use in worship, had an interesting way of describing church. Church, when it's healthy, is a place where there is no competition. Have you ever had a friend that you felt like in an unspoken way was competing against you? Trying to one-up you, outdo you, outshine you? There wasn't a lot of mutual trust and enjoyment in that friendship, was there? Because they had selfish ambition and vain conceit. And Paul says you have to do away with that completely in order to be a true spiritual friend where you're following Jesus together. And then in verse 3b and 4, he says, instead of that, in place of that, rather than selfish ambition and vain conceit, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. There is not, in true spiritual friendship, a desire to be protective or self-promoting with our own agenda our gut reaction is, I'm here for you. Now, there's not some kind of self-deprecation or self-denial here that's really unhealthy. Paul's not saying make yourself miserable and be a doormat that other people can take advantage of. No, that's not it at all. Because when you're thinking about their best interests, they are simultaneously thinking about yours. And you are caring for one another. The Christian life being made into the image of Christ, Paul suggests, is people who are hand in hand walking on the same pilgrimage and they look toward one another's interests for encouragement along the way. Christians begin by asking the question in true spiritual friendship, what would be best for this other person? Not, let me ask them how they're doing so we can get to my agenda. Rather, what is in the best interest of this other person? And let me see, God, how I could help them pursue that interest. And I'm trusting that they're going to do the same for me. That's a kind of humility that is refreshing and striking. The humility here, which means to make yourself low. 
not for the purpose of drawing attention to yourself, but making yourself low because you're not thinking about yourself. You are, in the words of Eugene Peterson, self-forgetful. I've shared some stories before about our former neighbor when we lived in the Homewood community named Dick Toya. Dick and Donna Toya lived next door to us, and every morning and every evening they would sit out on the front porch of this house, and they would just kind of watch over the neighborhood like grandparent figures. And people would walk their dogs, and they would greet everyone. I mean, it was like Genesis 1 and 2 when God came down in the cool of the evening. We could always count on them sitting out there having lemonade or tea. And my children, when they were young, Henry and Amelia, before our daughter Hannah joined our family, loved to go over there and to climb up into a little tree they had in their front yard and just talk with Mr. Dick and Miss Donna. I took this picture with Mr. Dick and our daughter Amelia. She was about three and a half years old here. And she had gone outside that afternoon before Dick and Donna went outside, before Cameron and I went out with her. And she saw all of his flowers in his flower bed and thought that it was a florist show. And she decided just to go down the line and picked probably 25 or 30 of his tulips and daffodils out of his flower bed. And I came out there and said, baby, we can't do that. Now that we've got to go, you've got to go tell Mr. Dick that you just pulled up all his flowers. Let's walk up to the front door. And we knocked on the front door and he opened the door and just a big grin on his face. I said, Mr. Dick, hello, Amelia has something she'd like to tell you. You know, big crocodile tears and lips sticking out. And she said, I picked the flowers. And my daddy's mad at me because she knew what she was doing. She threw me under the bus in front of him right there. And he knelt down to her and said, you can pick all the flowers out of my flower bed that you want. And then he just looked up at me and just stared me down. And we went back and replanted the flowers as best we could, but we let her keep just this one. That was the kind of spirit of my neighbor, Dick Toya. Well, a story that I've not shared about him, and one I'd actually not even shared with my family, is Dick loved to invite me to events at his church. He was at Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. He had been a deacon there for years, been worshiping there for over half a century. And he would show up sometimes with just having already made plans for me and just announce that I was going to be joining him somewhere. And so he knocked on my door one afternoon and said, we're having a men's dinner. They've got a speaker coming in and he's going to be talking about accountability for men in the church. Here's your ticket. I'll pick you up about 20 minutes ahead of time. Have a good night. And that was it. Okay, Dick, thanks. I'll be there. And so, of course, he shows up an hour early in a suit. We live two blocks from Dawson and we went to the dinner and had a good, good time um, of conversation around the meal. And then we went into their auditorium, and I would wager that there were 350, 400 people there. They introduced their speaker, who's here tonight to talk about the uh, power of Christian community for men, what I would describe as true spiritual friendship. And the speaker got up and introduced himself, and he said, uh, I planted a church in Tennessee about 17, 18 years ago. And over the five years since that church had been planted until the moment that I'll tell you about in the story, we were one of the fastest growing churches in the country. And frankly, you could tell why. He was a tall, striking person with a booming voice and a charismatic presence. And he said, we were just so excited. We were outgrowing our space and moving along. It was just such a, be a, great, it was such a great privilege to be a part of what God was doing. But what the people in my church didn't know is that I had a secret. And one night in particular, a problem with lust, 
I was on a trip to go speak at a conference. I was staying without anyone else with me, traveling without anyone else with me. And I went out, these are in the days before everything was digital and available immediately, and I rented a video that I should not have rented, and I went back to my hotel room and I watched it. And that room was even more quiet than this one is. And then he stopped and said, so what do you think of me now? And I'm sitting next to Dick. And he's sitting there with his hands on top of his cane. And I can hear him speak in a quiet voice in all that silence. Brother, I call you my brother. And I was shocked by that. Because I was sitting there thinking, just another hypocrite, huh? Look at all that you threw away and all the people you hurt by not living a life of character and integrity. I guess, I guess I understand now why you're here to talk about Christian community because it was something that you didn't have and you got yourself in trouble because nobody was asking you if you were living in the quiet, secret parts of your life the way that you were in public. And then this man next to me says, you're my brother. I think, I think that the reason why Dick could say instinctually to a fellow Christian who had a public and embarrassing failure, you're my brother, is because Dick wasn't comparing himself to other people. His eyes were on Christ and he was aware of how far he had to go to be like Jesus. And so when somebody next to him stumbled, he didn't turn around and wag his finger and say, well, good luck, you should have done better. He stopped and he lowered himself to lift them back up. I call you my brother. Paul says in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This leads up to Paul's setup statement before the great hymn that we read together. Verse 5, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do you approach your closest of friendships as having a common spiritual goal that two or more of you are working at and going toward together so that you feel like you've got people who are there to help you when you're feeling frail, when your faith is feeling thin, do you have that kind of spiritual friendship? Because following Jesus is not easy. It is not easy. And sometimes we need to hear and be reminded of that. But the better news to that word of reality is that God has accomplished everything in Christ that we need to be faithful. And God gives His Spirit for us to be faithful, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another. I saw this played out, this kind of true spiritual friendship played out in my own household about 12 years ago, 13 years ago now. My wife had began a job as a speech pathologist who specializes as an oral deaf educator. So she teaches what's called spoken language to children who are deaf or hard of hearing. 
So rather than learning sign language, she's trained in a special way to teach them how to, to speak and communicate orally the way that I am today. But she was at a residential school for the deaf, and almost everybody in this residential school as students signed exclusively. Most of the teachers, it was a requirement for them to be able to sign. Many of them were deaf themselves, and some of the administration as well. So this was a pilot program as a, at a residential school for the deaf, and there were many people there that did not want my wife and her team of two other people to begin this program. They questioned whether or not it would work. They didn't like resources being devoted to this new program that was so different. It was a culturally charged environment, and it was made clear to my wife and to her two co-workers. This is Cameron with her friend Brooke on the left part of the picture and their friend Lily on the right part of the picture, and they worked together as a team of three. They had one advocate in the administration that said, we've brought you here to do this program. We want to support you and see what kind of results you can get over the next few years. And after year one, that administrator retired. But the last thing they did right before they retired was they bought Cameron's group a new copy machine, which they needed. Because not only were they in a culturally charged environment, their program was segregated off to the side of the campus away from the main school buildings. So in order to use a copier, make copies or print something, they had to walk across campus outside, out an external stairwell to an upper floor and go into a shared office space. So now they finally got their own copy machine. Well, even though they, weren't, uh, they were, of course, over time, unable to make friends with other people and they had resistance and they would talk about the program publicly in staff meetings while my wife and her co-workers were there. And when the administrator retired, it was just a couple of months when their direct supervisor sent an email at the end of the day and said, we've decided to reallocate your new copier to another department. We have an older one. We're going to see about getting it fixed. And if we can get it fixed, we'll send that one down to your building. And my wife, who is lovely, is also salty. And she was hot. And Lily and Brooke were hot. They were weary from constantly being demoralized and questioned and singled out and isolated. And that was at the end of a work day. My wife was so upset. And she came home, and thankfully for her, God has given her a charming and supportive husband. And I was able to talk with her about it and just try to be a sympathetic ear, but I didn't have any answers for her. I was just trying to be supportive of how she felt. And the next morning she got up, and before she drove the 55 miles to Talladega, before she drove there, she took out her devotional book. She was working through, and it was about the Sermon on the Mount. It was Matthew 5, and there was a teaching in there from Jesus about how if you are my followers, you will be salt and you will be light. Not, I hope you will, but you are. And Cameron said, I cried and prayed on the way to work that morning. When I got there with Brooke and Lily, I called them in and said, listen, we're all Christians, and we have legitimate grievances. We've been mistreated. Why don't we try to flip the script? And why don't we try to live as graciously and as kindly as we can without complaint to our supervisor who's making our life difficult and to these other people that don't want to have anything to do with us? And if they come down here and ask for this printer, I think we ought to volunteer to push it up the hill for them. Because we are salt and we are light. We don't have a choice about it. If we're Christians, that's who we are. So let's do it. And they agreed that they would. 
And it kind of became almost a joking thing where there would be some mornings when Cameron would arrive at work and I remember her telling me after the fact, she would say to them, you know, I'm feeling a little more, more salt than light today, so who's going to be light? Because I only feel like I can be salt. And they kind of, but it became part of their culture as a team in that group. And you know what happened? Over the next two years, their working relationships were changed. And they began to establish trust and goodwill with those other co-workers and even their direct supervisor who did not lead in a way that inspired their confidence. And they never came to pick up that copier. Earlier this year, my wife, who became good friends with both of these ladies, received a surprise gift from Brooke, a little bracelet. Twelve years later, twelve years later, what was it about that environment, that moment, that made them remember it in such a way that they would give a gift twelve years later based on that? It was a friendship of trust and joy, but a shared commitment to becoming like Jesus. It was a spiritual friendship. Let me tell you, people who live outside of the church don't need to just look inside of the church and see, oh, another fabulous weekend away with our besties or another yearly golf outing or fishing trip with the boys. The world needs to see people who have the courage to step out of their comfort zone and to say to one another, would you be willing to join me and me with you to help me and me with you in having the image of Christ be remade in us? Do you have that kind of courage or desire? If you don't, I would encourage you to consider praying for it. God, you've made us for relationships with you and with each other. And at a time in our world when it seems that isolation is maximized and the bonds of our common friendships are frayed, I pray that within the church at Ross Bridge and all of your local churches throughout the world, that we would, God, seek the guidance of your Spirit to give us the courage to rise to another kind of friendship, true spiritual friendship, that we may encourage and support one another with humility and with a, a self-denial self that looks to the interest of others that would be a compelling witness to those who live beyond the church. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and God's people say, Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 